Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Frank MacDonald, an author, journalist and environmentalist. As a journalist, Frank worked with the Irish Press before moving to the Irish Times where he held the role of environment editor with much of his journalistic work focused on issues around planning and development in Dublin City. A champion of environmental protection and sustainable development, Frank also translated this interest into a host of books about the topic. His latest is called A Little History of the Future of Dublin which is published by Martello. Frank is a BA in History and Politics from UCD and when he was there he was Deputy President of the Students' Representative Council but also editor of the UCD newspaper, The Observer. So, Frank, was that the start of your journalism journey? Well, actually, when I went to UCD uh, way back in 1967, when uh, the college was still in Earthford Terrace, (laughs) uh, um, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at all. I had no idea. Um, And that's why I I did an arts degree, because with an arts degree, you can basically, you're not training for anything very specific. And I got involved in student politics and also in student journalism journalism and uh, the paper that the first paper that I worked for in not worked for but contributed to in UCD was called Campus and that by complete coincidence was edited by Conor Brady who subsequently became um, editor of the Irish Times and in fact I worked for him uh, for quite a lot of the time I was in the paper um, so it was something that really appealed to me I mean it was something that I f- that I could do because I could write. I mean, I had a great English teacher um, in school at Vincent's in Glasnevin, uh, Bob Eager, who really taught us how to write. Um, and if you were interested in writing at all, um, this was it was a great start. So, you know, when I discovered student journalism, I realised that was really my vocation. And and the paper that we produced was called Student and it was so cheap to produce and we were making loads of money because we were selling like hotcakes and uh, and so we ended up uh, having loads of money that we could uh, spend to treat ourselves to dinners in the Trocadero and uh, the Robert Emmett Grill in the old Royal uh, Hiber- uh, Hibernian Hotel and so on. It was just great um, and then I went to New York uh, became uh, a freelance correspondent for the Irish press from New York City at the age of 22, wow. which was really kind of extraordinary in itself. And then they offered me a job in Dublin as a sub-editor. So I came back and spent three years on the subs desk. And that was fantastic training in itself to become a reporter and a proper journalist uh, in effect. And that's uh, what I did. And you became a news reporter then with the Irish press after that? I did. And um, and it was great. That was, I covered everything. I covered the Doyle. I covered ch- the Children's Court. I covered you know, disasters as they were happening and and whatever, uh, anything and everything in news and eventually started writing about stuff that was going on in Dublin to do with transport planning. God help us, you know, here we are in the midst of yet another transport strategy that doesn't really say very much. Um, and then I got it was very lucky to get a job in the Irish Times uh, in 1978. Um, I started I started there and the first big story that I covered was when the French oil tanker Betelgeuse blew up in Bantry Bay and uh, went down there at five o'clock in the morning to 
you know, in effect, pick up the pieces uh, and then gravitated towards writing about Dublin issues. And in particular, a series that I did back in 1979, which was called Dublin, What Went Wrong? And it ran for five days, um, a full page every day for five days. And that really was something that woke people up. Uh, I think, to what was going on in the city. And you've got to remember, in the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s, I mean, Dublin was in bits. You know, there were derelict sites all over the place, you know, tumble-down buildings. There was there was nothing happening or very little happening. And so we documented um, derelict Dublin uh, in the Irish Times uh, over a period of weeks on end. Um, a series was running just headline derelict Dublin and dealing with different parts of the city and, and finding out what was going on. And I would go down to the company's office to research who the developers were and, you know, what they uh, and the planning. I was practically a fixture in the planning department <laughs> of Dublin City Council and County Council later on uh, when they were in the Irish Life Centre. And just kind of, I suppose, really what it was, was original research in a way. I was going to, you know, find out what was going on. And that's a job of a journalist. Find out what's going on and tell people about it. And what reaction then? I can imagine you got a big reaction from the developers at the time, but also political circles. What were they thinking? Well, I don't, I mean, you know, that that really, I, I wasn't even thinking about that at, at that stage. It was really only after the first book that I did was published that 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 that, that really became um, a major political issue um, about what was, to, what was to be done about the city. And, and that book, I mean, Fergal Tobin, the then editorial director of Gill and Macmillan, just wrote to me, wrote me a letter uh, at the time in 1984 and said, you know, I've followed your stuff in the Irish Times. Would you think about writing a book? And I never even thought of writing had a book. Had you not? I no. had never honestly thought of writing and a book. And why? Would, did you think maybe there wasn't an audience for well, it? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I didn't. It just wasn't on my radar at all at the time, bizarrely, in a way. And then I thought, well, can I, could I do that? And I thought, well, yeah, I probably could. And, I, and then I got stuck into that and took six months off work and everything unpaid leave I I was about to say did you find though you know because a lot of authors we have on if they're they're double jobbing as such trying to be a journalist during the day and write at night it is so time consuming did you feel you needed to take that time off oh absolutely because the the, you know there was such a monumental amount of stuff that I needed to accumulate and I had I think I had two orange boxes full of files in the dining room in the house that I was living in in Harold's Cross at the time and you know it was just an extraordinary adventure in a way you know and then to see the thing going into print and and actually I remember going into Fred Hanna's bookshop as it used to be in in Nassau Street and seeing a stack of them on a table just inside the front door and thinking oh my god that's mine yeah, well, not just that's mine, but I, I said, how are we going to get away with all of this? <laughs> how are we going to sell them? And in terms of writing it then, did it take that six months? Did you it manage did. to oh, do yeah, it? Oh, yeah, absolutely, I did, yeah. And I, I actually wrote it in longhand first and then right. transferred it to, I got a, I rented an IBM golf ball typewriter <laughs> and was typed it up then and gave them a typescript uh, at the end. Then it had to go through the lawyers and be vetted for libel and everything else. And in the end, we were sued for libel by a number of different parties, not that many. And it didn't cost that much money in payouts or anything else. But, you know, and and Gill and Macmillan never made any money out of it. And I never made any money out of it either, even though it was a bestseller, uh, because that was all used up in legal fees and costs and stuff like that. But Fergal Tobin still, he's still a very good friend of mine. And he actually said to me very, very recently, he says, 
I'm very proud of the fact that we brought out the destruction of Dublin. Well, this is it. And at a time when the publishing industry was in, I suppose, so different to what it is now, you know, and it was very hard to get a book published then at that time. And specifically a book that would be so niche, I suppose, Mm. and very much focused on just the capital city. Well, I think that it was it was something that there was a lot of unease about what was happening. And in fact, you know, the reaction to the book was so positive uh, from uh, such a huge variety of people that a number of us got together. Dean Victor Griffin, who was the great dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Deirdre Kelly from the Living City Group, uh, Mick Rafferty, who was an activist, community activist in the North Inner City, um, David Norris um, and myself and, and Larry Dillon from the Liberties. We got together and we organised a huge conference that took place in February 1986, which was called the Dublin Crisis Conference. And we packed the Synod Hall at Christchurch Place, which is now Dublinia, um, at the tourist exhibition Viking Dublin. Um, and that uh, was just a huge thing. And we got Gareth Fitzgerald, the then Taoiseach, to come along and, and respond to uh, what the conference had been discussing, which was what we could do to repopulate the inner city, to stop the destructive road plans, to, you know, fill in the derelict sites with buildings that people could live in and so on and so forth. It was it was a big agenda. And that led to the first Urban Renewal Act in 1986, uh, which offered tax incentives for designated areas of Dublin and elsewhere. So it did make a difference, you know, and, and I'm very proud of that, actually, to be honest. And you became really a campaigning journalist. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like I think that, that you know, as I said, original research is very important. And, I, and, and that, that's one of the things that I, I, it turned out I was quite good at to find out things. And if you tell people about it, it does have an impact and it is something that that needs to be focused on. And so I kept returning to issues to do with planning, not just in Dublin, but in Ireland in general. Um, You know, I wrote a major series in 1987, which was called The Bungalow Blitz. Mm -hmm. And it was about the proliferation of rural housing um, throughout the countryside um, in Ireland. And that caused a huge reaction as well. So, yes, I was a campaigning journalist because, you know, and then I got involved in the global climate change um, issue as well because I, I was at the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992 uh, and I followed that up by attending nearly all, not quite all, but nearly all of the climate conferences that took place, the COPs, the famous COPs um, that took place every year, starting in Berlin in 1995 mm-hmm. with a, a COP, that the first COP on the climate was was chaired by Angela Merkel, the then little really? known, practically unknown German environment Where minister. Where is she now? Well, she's just retired <laughs> exactly. after being, you know, virtually the uncrowned queen of Europe. And in terms of environment correspondent with the Irish Times, was that role created then for you or was it there already? It was there already, but but by the time I, apply, I, I applied for it, there was no, no nobody else applied because I'd already been kind of more or less covering that uh, for a couple of years um, so nobody else applied and I just went along for a formal interview and they gave me the job and that was it and then and then in 2000 um, after um, another book that I wrote called The Construction of Dublin came out uh, that really exposed uh, the level of corruption that was involved in the planning process in County Dublin with land rezoning and all the rest of it Conor Brady offered me the job of environment editor mm-hmm. and that was kind of like a 
uh, an honour, I suppose, in a way. And that's what I remained until I retired in 2015. And I love obviously the play on words, the destruction of Dublin is book number one. And then, as you said, in 2000, the construction of Dublin. Um, Were they different publishers? Uh, They were, yeah. Uh, The construction of Dublin was actually done by Gandon Editions uh, down in Kinsale. And and actually, construction is a word that in the context of the title of the book, it was about almost what do we mean by Dublin now? Because at that stage, it was already clear that Dublin was leapfrogging into Leinster with, you know, suburban housing estates popping up outside places like Rochford Bridge and County Westmeath and Mullingar and wherever. And um, and these were little bits of Dublin that had ended up very far away, people commuting 50 miles or 80 kilometres a day in and out. They in, still into, do. And they still do. Mm. And that, so it was kind of like documented. So what did we mean when we say Dublin? What is the Dublin that's being constructed? And, you know, like, obviously... As somebody who, uh, I mean, I used to live in Harold's Cross and then I decided that Harold's Cross was even too far away <laughs> from the centre. So when the Temple Bar project started in 1991, um, I I said to Temple Bar Properties, I said, look, if you're going to be building apartments, and they didn't even know at that stage whether there was even going to be a market for apartments in the city centre. Um, and I said, put my name down for, for one, you know. So we ended up actually queuing for a week a week. In a week. I'm not joking. Um, what year was that? That was in 1995 uh, to get the... Even well before the, the, the Celtic yeah. Tiger boom. Well, I mean, that was the beginnings of it, I suppose. I was very lucky, really, uh, because, you know, the house in Harold's Cross was sold and then we had the money to buy the flat in Temple Bar with a bit of an extra mortgage from the EBS or whoever. And that was something that... You know, I thought, well, look, I should I should really, I suppose, put my money where my mouth is by I had been campaigning for the idea of having a living city. And so this opportunity arose and and I just went for it. And and so I've been living there for the last 26 years. And how much the whole place there has changed over that time frame. And as Absolutely. you said, the, the fact that you've been right in the centre of the city for that time frame has, has really informed, as you say, the, the content of all your books. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's one of the great things about living in town is that you walk out the door into the street and you're you're within minutes of everything that you need. I mean, it's like, you know, the 15 minute city that's being talked about a lot mm-hmm. now by Anil Dago, the mayor of Paris and others. And there's a it's a big kind of buzz the new buzz catchphrase for urban development is the 15 minute city. And the whole idea of it is that everyone is going to be able to meet their daily needs within a 15 minute walk of where they live. And I certainly have that in 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 Temple Bar. I mean, yes, you have to put up with a lot of downsides, you know, like noise, noise and um people, uh, you know, behaving badly and so on and so forth. But, you know, uh, and, and you know, the balance of the area has not been great because the pubs really uh, grabbed the, uh, the tax incentives that were available back in 1991 uh, to basically colonise the area and expand, you know, and so on. So we've had a constant struggle trying to keep... Um, trying to keep a lid on the expansion of the licensed trade in Temple Bar so that it becomes possible for people to live there. And there are, you know, the population of Temple Bar probably in 2019 was up to 2,000. Um, 
But even then it was being eroded by the proliferation of Airbnbs, you know, of mm-hmm. long term residential accommodation being turned over to tourist uh, flats, you know, um, earning twice or three times as much money as you'd get from renting out to a person on a permanent basis. And that is just very sad. And all of those flats that have been turned over to tourists really need to be recovered because they're part of the city's housing stock Mm -hmm. and especially in the centre. And if you walk around streets in the centre of Dublin, I mean, you know, it's obvious if you look above the shops, there's loads and loads of space available that's hardly used or maybe used maybe for offices or some storage or even just vacant. And all of that can be turned into residential accommodation if the will was there to do it. And that can all be done by small builders. It doesn't require big developers with pinstripe suits and cigars. It just requires guys, small building companies to take on projects like that. And and to uh, that would really transform the place. And, 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 you know, if you think about what Dublin was like, the centre of Dublin was like during the COVID lockdowns. I mean, it was like a ghost town. Mm. And the reason why it was like a ghost town is because there just aren't anything like enough people living here. Speaking of uh, pinstripe suits and cigars, then one of the books then that you had out in 2008 actually was was co-written with Cathy Sheridan. Sheridan. So I suppose what I'm interested in there as well, and and we'll talk about that book in a sec, the first number of books you did, you did on your own. Yeah. Um, And uh, did you take time off after the first one for your other books or were you able to do it while you were working? I did. I mean, in the case of the builders, um, Cathy, Cathy was actually working. She got a sabbatical from the Irish Times and I got the offer of a press fellowship at Wilson College in Cambridge. And so I was in Cambridge writing there and she was in Straffan in County Kildare doing mm-hmm. her stuff. And we were, you know, exchanging it all by email uh, and, and gradually getting the book together. And I think we met only twice during the course of writing that book. And one of them was... Uh, one time in London where we met Sean Mulryan of Ballymore Properties, you know, and he even sent a car to pick us up at King's Cross Station, though I have to say the traffic in London was so bad at that stage that we would have been much quicker taking the underground. <laughs> By that stage, of course, I had no, I knew quite a lot of the developers and, uh, you know, particularly people like Johnny Ronan, Richard Barrett and other others. And, you know, so you, and, and a lot of the architects, of course, involved as well and so on. So we got we had plenty of sources uh, for and I think at one at one stage, I, I think I remember going out to uh, to Palermo in Italy, uh, sorry, in Sicily to um, interview Richard Barrett because he says he wasn't he wasn't going to be back in Ireland. So I, I needed to talk to him to get some background information about what was what was going on. So I ended up having to fly to Sicily. Having to, to, to meet fly, him. Frank. I'm sure yes, you didn't was, enjoy that. It was that. tragic. It was tragic. <laughs> and uh, I suppose part of, of you know, the, the focus of this book as well was trying to find out what drove these individuals, you know, these these people that you were profiling. Do you think you found out in the end what did drive them? I think most of most property developers are driven by by you know making deals and making the best deals possible from their own point of view and that is what drives them in the end it's not really about the accumulation of money though of course that helps um too because if you want to have a Maybach car as Johnny Ronan had or travel in a helicopter uh, as he did from Enniskerry um into 
it's the centre of Dublin for some time. Um, you know, obviously you need the money as well, but it, that isn't primarily what it's about. It's really about making deals and 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 fulfilling your agenda. I mean, if you want to build whatever, you know, whether it's office blocks or whatever, and you get in good architects and 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 some and a lot of the developers, in fairness to them, would be quite proud of what they have achieved uh, over the years. Um, but, you know, what they were involved in then was quite different to what's going on now because what's happening now is that, <clears throat> you know, the banks, Irish banks are really not lending for property development in, in Dublin and elsewhere. And what we have is is all these funds coming in from abroad, this so-called wall of money that's available for investment in, in private residential housing in, 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 our, uh, in Ireland. And that has changed the whole picture really and you now have the build to rent model as being the the thing that has really taken over so that apartments are no longer being built for sale anymore you know like previously apartment buildings would be you know say there'd be a hundred apartments they'd be put on the market people would buy them some people would buy them to live in some would buy them to rent them out and stuff like that and that was the way everything worked and I don't think there was anything wrong with that system uh, because, you know, it, it guaranteed that at least there was going to be a proportion of people living in any particular scheme that would be permanent residents, that would own their own place and therefore have a stake in the community. I mean, we noticed that quite a lot in Temple Bar, that a lot of the apartments are rented rather than owner-occupied. But if you have our own rocky powers, as we do in our building, we have there's five flats in our building and two of them are owner occupied and three of them are rented out. So, you know, we if when you've got owner occupation, you've got a stake in the community and you've got a stake in the area. And so it's And do you think that's driven by greed then on behalf of the developers? Because they don't care about the local community. They just care about the bottom line. Well, they, uh, I think that that is, unfortunately that is what has happened. And a lot of the developers, a lot of the developers that are now active are not even Irish. You know, they're, they're Irish subsidiaries of big corporations like Heinz, for example, um, who, uh, who, who in, in many ways, it, it doesn't matter in a way whether, like if you take, the tallest residential tower in Dublin is Capital Dock and it's about 80 metres tall, 22, uh, 22 storeys of flats and there's 190 flats in, in that building and that was Apartments, Frank, apart I think sorry, you probably uh, want sorry, to I beg call your, well, That's right, <laughs> apartments, I beg your pardon. I know, yeah. But anyway, um, the, um, the, there's 190 uh, apartments in that building and um, 34% of them are still vacant nearly three years after it was completed because the rents that are being charged are just so high that not even, not even you know, rich kind of young mobile Google tech employees um, can afford to pay, you know, 3,000 a month for a one bedroom flat, for example. Which is just example. phenomenal money, isn't it? Well, it is just crazy, really, you know. And so you end up with this kind of, that, the, that what, what, Capital Dock really is 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 not a place for people to live necessarily. It's a money tree for investors. And even though a third of it is vacant, the capital value of that building continues to appreciate every year, year after year in a rising market. So they don't mind that the flats are empty. You know, they don't mind at all because the the value of their investment keeps going up. Your latest book then is A Little History of the Future of Dublin. Am I right in thinking this started as an essay? It did. <laughs> it Christ. did. 
<laughs> I mean, essentially what happened was uh, Trevor White from the, the incomparable little museum of Dublin in Stephen's Green, um, he, he got in touch with me one day and he says, he says, we're planning to have this exhibition in the autumn. Um, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be the, the, the working title, he said, is A Little History of the Future of Dublin. And the whole idea was to, to kind of examine the kind of visions that people had over the centuries of, for the development of Dublin, going back to the time of the Duke of Ormond in the 1660s. And um, and so um, I said, I, I, you know, he wanted me to write an essay to go with the exhibition. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And uh, then it you just started. Kind of, it you did, yeah, but I, I mean, <laughs> well, essentially what happened was that, you know, there was so much going on in the on the planning front, even in the midst of the COVID lockdowns and so on. There was so much going on and I was involved in making submissions and lodging appeals and objections and other stuff like that. And uh, one of my friends, Alan Mee, who's an architect and teaches in UCD, he said, why don't you write a book? And I said, I can't really write a book in the midst of it, of all of this, you know. And then it occurred to me that actually the Little Museum essay could be expanded and taken right up to the present day and even looking into the future mm-hmm. of Dublin. And um, and so that's how it came about. And I, I love it because it, it, it felt like a little history book as well. As I was reading it, it just reminded me again of the history of Dublin, which is which is what readers will thoroughly enjoy about it, going right from, you know, the Viking origins, as you say, right up to well, the uh, Georgian uh, grandeur to, yeah, to today. Well, exactly. And, 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 you know, that is, that's one, I think it's the first time, in fact, that, uh, that, 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 that history has been gathered together along with what's going on now and throughout the 20 I mean throughout the 20th century as well uh, in one in one book um, and you know like when you think of the stuff that they managed to achieve way back in the 17th and 18th centuries in particular mm-hmm. I mean it's quite extraordinary I mean the Duke of Ormond himself he, he was one of the butlers of Kilkenny mm-hmm. and he had been restored as Viceroy uh, in 1662 uh, when Charles II got back on the throne of England and 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 as as Morris Craig said, when he stepped off, when when Ormond stepped off his boat at Ringsend, the Renaissance, in a word, had arrived in Ireland. It was the twenty seventh of July, sixteen sixty two, and and the gifts that he gave to Dublin are immeasurable. He was the one who had spent the years in exile with Charles II in Paris, was so impressed by the the, the keys on the Seine. That when he came back to Dublin, he says, we've got to stop this nonsense of building, you know, new buildings with backing onto the river with people emptying their their pots and their dirt, Mm -hmm. you know, sweeping it out into the river. And that we need to have keys. We need to have a formal set of, you know, keys along the river, then a footpath, carriageway, and then the buildings facing the Liffey. And that we owe the Liffey Keys to the Duke of Ormond, as we owe the Phoenix Park and the Royal Hospital Kilmainham as well. And I think it's wonderful to be reminded of of all of that, especially during you know as a, after the the COVID times that we've we've just come through. Um, how long did it take you to write it? Well, off and on, um, it took the guts of you know like. Um, I suppose it was six or seven months. Um, right. It was it was pretty fast, and uh, this was in between everything else. I mean, I would be, for example, making an appeal um, or putting in a submission or writing a big lengthy submission on, for example, Johnny Ronan's outrageous scheme for the the the, the two fingers uh, down in Docklands, mm-hmm. the the forty one story tower and the 
45 storey tower. I mean, way above the scale of anything else in Dublin. Um, and so, you know, it was great for me to be able to take a break from all of that and go back to the heroic period of Dublin planning in the in the 18th century in particular and to write about that as almost like a pastime in a way for the book while I was doing all the other stuff as well and then being able to incorporate a lot of it into the, the whole, well, weave it all into, into a kind of a history of what happened throughout the 20th century from the time of the Duke of Ormond right up to the present day, uh, including some of the horrors that took place in the 20th century as well when Georgian Dublin was treated like dirt, really, by, by developers at the time and even by the roads engineers as well. What I love, though, about the book is you also talk about the potential of Dublin and the way it could be. And you actually speak to a number of... of Dubliners, yeah. um, you know, you get their view on it. Um, the likes of Fintan O'Toole, Una Mullally, yeah. Alice Leahy, Joe Duffy. And one thing that came through from most of those quotes, a lot of those quotes was they all felt the city hadn't yet reached its full potential. So the word potential is really big there. I think that that is true. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, like I think I, I think, in fact, the thing that would really make a huge difference is if we had more than double the number of people that currently live in the inner city. I mean, that oval-shaped area between the the Grand Canal and the Royal Canal. um, To have, say, set a target of having a quarter of a million people living within that area of uh, the the core, the heart of the city. Is it achievable, do you think? I think it is achievable. It absolutely is achievable. And it would, particularly is is achievable if we were to concentrate on, as I said, the smaller projects like converting the upper floors of, of, of shop buildings in on some of the main streets of the city into residential accommodation. And, you know, like Georgian houses can be converted superbly well into into apartments. And if you go up to number three, Henrietta Street, I mean, a building that was absolutely nearly falling down, you know, after years and years, decades of neglect. And that's been turned into seven really high quality um, corporate less apartments um, and that shows what can be done I mean if you take the H&M store in College Green there's there's um, a, something like 10 or 12 apartments above that shop and they're among the best apartments in Dublin now they're all for, for rent at probably extravagant uh, prices well, but even so once there's triple there with the noise I think you might be, you well, might yeah, be okay yeah but I mean think, you know. of, think of the views you know views out over College Green you couldn't beat it I love that your passion for the topic is still so vibrant. And then I look back on, you know, the past three decades and sort of wonder, though, has as a city and, you know, from your perspective as an environmentalist, do you think we have learned anything at all about about planning and about development? Sometimes I feel like we're two steps forward and 10 steps back. Well, I think that um, one of the things that I found really heartening was the huge turnout uh, recently for this big protest march against the um, plan to gobble up the cobblestone pub in Smithfield mm. and um, the east side of Merchant's Arch um, for new hotels. Um, and look, I cycled up to Smithfield and I thinking there'd be a couple of hundred people there. There was a massive crowd. I'd say at least 2,000 people. Um, and the march was preceded by these guys in dressed in black carrying a mock coffin with the word the word RIP Dublin on it. And and 
to see that shouldered across the Hapney Bridge was something quite moving, really, you know, and it seemed to kind of encapsulate as a metaphor for what is going on, where there's nothing is being valued and where everything is up for sale. And I think that that is something that we really need to watch, because unless we recognise the sense of place of places like Merchant's Arch, you know, that's like our own little version of a Moroccan souk, you know, or a bazaar, you know, where you walk through this place and there's lines with these chaotic little shops and whatnot. But it's great. It's the real thing. Authentic. Authentic. It's the real thing. And we have to we have to protect what's real about Dublin and not allow the place to be starbucked out of it. And that's the other thing you mentioned quite a lot in the book as well is demolishing versus transforming. You know, instead of demolishing everything, we need to take what we have and transform it. Exactly. Exactly. And that and that is that makes sense also from a climate point of view, because when you think, you know, the manufacture of concrete is one of the most carbon intensive things around. So if we can cut back on the amount of demolition and redevelopment and actually work with the existing fabric of the city, um, whether it's historic buildings from the 18th or 19th century or even the 20th century. I mean, one of the tragedies in Dublin is that we're losing 20th century buildings Mm -hmm. of value. They're just being junked. And that's all that stuff is being dumped, basically. And, and you know, it, there's embodied carbon in every building. And if we can hold on to that, we reduce emissions and help uh, save the climate. And then, uh, in addition to all the books about the environment and about Dublin, you actually wrote a memoir in 2018. And again, quite a departure, I suppose, from, from the other books you were writing. Obviously, yes, they're all factual nonfiction, but this is different. This is personal. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I gave too much of myself away, to be honest. Do you? I do, yeah. Kind yeah. of, I kind of regret. Well, why did you I write it in the first place? Or? Well, because um, um, Michael McLaughlin from Penguin um, uh, Ireland uh, it asked me to do it and and it didn't really work out very well from my point of view I don't think and um, and I think the less said about it the better really to be honest Really you just feel it was there was too much detail in there? Um, I'm not I'm, I'm not sure really I don't know what it was uh, it just it, it wasn't a happy project mm-hmm. to work on to be honest whereas this one was even though I get outraged by some of the things that are going on. But I mean, it, this has been much, uh, I mean, I've really thrown myself into this and and um, I hope people like it. And your, your passion project. So what are you working on at the moment? Um, I'm, I'm currently working on a very lengthy, um, a very lengthy complaint about the way in which Onboard Planola is c- conducting its business. And what will happen there? We just need to watch this space, do we? I think so, yeah. <laughs> well, Frank MacDonald, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find a little history of the future of Dublin online or at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books I-R-E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Brida Brown. Keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production. 